Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Munnies, who had an election story recently looking at the spending by outside groups on state campaigns leading up to Oklahoma's primary election. Paul, why did you decide to look at this particular kind of campaign spending? Yeah, so campaign commercials and direct mail are kind of perennial features of any kind of campaign and political races. But this year particularly, there was a lot of money it looked like being spent on these outside independent expenditures, which are a whole different category of campaign spending. So what are the rules uh, around these independent expenditures in Oklahoma? Well, there's not a ton of rules, but there are some things that the, the main one is they cannot coordinate any of their expenditures with the actual campaigns themselves. They have to remain independent, and that's kind of the reason they're called independent expenditures. Uh, they also are allowed to accept money from any source in any unlimited amount, um, and that's compared to campaigns themselves, which can only accept uh, $2,900 from an individual per election and $5,000 from a political action committee per election. And so how much money was spent in June leading up to the election? Yeah, so we took a look at all the reports filed with the State Oklahoma Ethics Commission, and it came to almost $10 million uh, for the month of June in the, the weeks before the primary election. Well, how does that compare to spending by by the campaigns? Well, that's 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 that was one of the reasons why we looked at this um, so, so in-depth, because a lot of this was being outstripped the campaign spending themselves. So the campaigns were spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, and these groups on outside spending were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these races as well. Well, who's been uh, critical of those large amounts uh, spent by the independents? So some of the, the folks in the legislature who were targeted by some of these independent expenditures were uh, fairly critical of, of the outside spending in their campaigns themselves. Of course, that's not a surprise. Uh, nobody really likes being targeted in their campaigns. Uh, you know, expect it from your opponent, but an outside group is a little something different. Uh, also, in the weeks before the election, uh, former state auditor uh, Gary Jones and Oklahoma County Republican chairman held a press conference kind of blasting some of this independent expenditures, particularly highlighting one of the races um, for a state auditor inspector in the GOP primary. Um, the incumbent, uh, Cindy Byrd, um, had raised several hundred thousand dollars for her own campaign, and her opponent in that, um, that race, Steve McQuillan, had barely raised a couple of thousand himself, but had hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on his campaign by these outside uh, dark money groups. What surprised you looking into the finance reports? Well, of course, the, the the donors to these independent expenditure campaigns are secret, and that's under federal and state law. But some of them were not, you know, really trying to hide their, their tracks very much. Um, in fact, um, the Choctaw Nation, uh, a mailing address showed up on one of the, the PACs that was spending in some of the governor's races um, and in the legislative races as well. Now, did any of the outside uh, spending affect the outcomes in any of those primaries? Well, a couple of the House members for the GOP that were targeted by some outside spending in their campaigns, um, they won re-election fairly handily, and so it didn't really have a ton of effect, it appears, in that race. But um, there were a couple of races that were a little closer than maybe what the polling before indicated, particularly the attorney general's uh, race between uh, Gettner Drummond and um, 
um, John O'Connor. Um, that race ended up being 51% for Gintner Drummond and 49% for, for O'Connor. Uh, there was more than $1.6 million spent in outside money on that race alone statewide. Um, that was more than um, some of the campaigns had raised themselves. And maybe that had a factor. It's really hard to say exactly what, how voters were moved by some of the spending and the direct mail that came to their mailboxes. Well, do you expect more of that kind of spending as we head to the August runoffs and the November general election? Yeah, probably not to the same extent because, you know, as you know, uh, Oklahoma is a fairly Republican state. So a lot of the action was in the primary for, for a lot of these races. Um, now, we do have some runoffs and some fairly high profile races that did attract independent expenditures, um, such as the, the race for state superintendent between Ryan Walters and April Grace. Uh, that will probably see quite a bit more in, in their primary uh, runoff election. And then, of course, the general election, uh, Governor Stitt had some you know, anti-Stitt ads spent on him by these outside groups, and we'll probably see a lot more of that as we head into the general election as he faces um, his Democratic opponent, uh, Joy Hoffmeister. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can uh, read Paul's coverage of the independent expenditures uh, as well as all his other investigative work at our website, oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, we're talking to Ashland Huffman, who's starting a new role at Oklahoma Watch as our new criminal justice reporter. In fact, we're recording this on her first full day with Oklahoma Watch. Ashlyn, uh, welcome aboard. Tell us a little about yourself. Thank you for having me. Um, so I started journalism in December 2019 in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where I've worked the last two and a half years. I've covered the cops beat, breaking news, and court. And uh, how long have you been a journalist, and why did you choose that that career? I've been a journalist for two and a half years, and I chose journalism because I was actually inspired by the movie Spotlight. I love researching and digging into stories, and I always have a lot of questions, so I figured journalism would be a good career path. So what, what kind of reporting were you uh, doing prior to joining us? I mostly did breaking news following the police scanner, fires, car crashes, homicides, those types of things. And then I also followed up with daily court proceedings for the big cases, major crimes, which include homicide, sexual assault, those kind of things. And then I also did, since it was community journalism, I covered things from graduation to pinning ceremonies for the police department, all kinds of things like that. What, uh, what story are you most proud of? So since I started right before the pandemic, I did a story on the comparison between the Great Depression and the pandemic. And one of the ladies, Geraldine, she had an amazing story. And throughout that time, I grew close with them. She actually passed away and her family told me that that story being in the newspaper meant so much to them and is something that they would keep forever. So that's why that's one of my favorite stories. Uh, why criminal justice reporting? What's your interest there? Well, it started when I did a minor in criminal justice in college. I took an elective on criminal behavior, and I was instantly hooked on criminal justice. And then I saw firsthand some of the problems we have in Oklahoma and the United States for incarcerated individuals. And so I knew I wanted to minor in criminal justice, so I decided to do investigative reporting on criminal justice. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, um, some of that, uh, some of the the uh, classes that you took for that minor in criminal justice involved some 
some creative approaches to learning about the system. Tell me about that. Um, so one of the classes, the Inside Out Prison Exchange Program, half the class were inmates and then the other half were college students. So once a week, we'd go up to Davis Correctional Facility in um, Holdenville and we would have class. I think it was on a Monday or Tuesday every week. And what we did is it was to help show both sides. So I was in there with everyone who is criminal justice. So that shows them how people in prison are and how they can change. And since I'm a journalist, you know, I took the class because I was, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to figure out why criminals commit crimes. And I walked away realizing that they're people too. They're, they're not their crime. What, what are the big criminal justice issues that you see facing the state? Um, personally, from that class, I saw that Oklahoma has a very tough on crime approach, which is fine. People should pay their punishment, but we don't offer enough resources within prison. So when they get out, we don't have a good recidivism rate because people, it's like a cycle. If you're cutting the programs, drug and alcohol programs and work programs within the prison, when they get out, they're just going to reoffend if they don't have those resources. And then another thing is eliminating the felony checkbox for some crimes. We recently had legislation for expungement to make it more modern, which is going to be a big step for Oklahoma. There's a lot of people that since 780 and 781 passed making property some property crimes and drug crimes misdemeanors, a lot of people are due expungements, but it is a costly process. So Representative Nicole Miller made um, a bill that passed legislation this last session, and it'll, mo it'll modernize expungement. Uh, you know, Ashlyn's being a, a little bit modest. You did some investigative work and uh, won a couple significant awards for that the last two years. What were those? Um, so when I first started my job about two weeks in, I was looking at the police logs and I noticed there was about three to five sexual assault investigations in the police logs. And I asked my boss, Bo Simmons at the time, is that normal? And because I had just moved to Stillwater and he said, follow up with it. And over the last, over the course of that year, 2020, we realized that there had been hundreds and hundreds of police reports spanning the county, but only uh, less than five sexual assaults had been prosecuted. And then of those five, only one was actually prosecuted as a rape. The other ones had pled out. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, victims might choose not to come forward. Victims might not want to finish the process because it is very brutal to watch them it's kind of like law and order when you watch it on TV, except the bad guy doesn't actually go away because the victims are re-traumatized and re-traumatized and court cases take years and years to complete. So it can be taxing on a victim. So that, that story led to the uh, State Press Association's award for uh, in the top investigative story of the year. And uh, you won that two years in a row, didn't you? Yes. Uh, the other one I did was a series on child sexual abuse called Hidden in Plain Sight. So that idea came from a court case I was following. There were three children who had been adopted and they had been in the foster care system. And so, but they had been abused in their adoptive family's home by a live-in boyfriend. And the jury, actually, there were some people in the jury that thought, well, because the kids were in foster care, they have to be lying because they have trauma. And it wasn't until they showed the police video of the suspect being interviewed that they realized these kids were actually abused. And I, we don't ever release victims' names or relationship to the perpetrator, so I always know that it's usually a family or someone that 
the kid knows, but people in the community didn't realize that. So I did a series that highlighted the um, what it's actually like. I talked to four survivors, and they were all abused by the same man spanning decades, spanning so many decades that one of the women, she was actually outside the statute of limitations and couldn't be prosecuted. Her case couldn't be prosecuted. So it's really an educational story for the community. All right. Thanks, Ashland. And uh, since you're uh, new to um, Oklahoma City anyway, and you'll be doing some work around the state, uh, how can people reach you if they've got an idea for a story or some information they'd like to share? The best way to reach me is through my email, ahuffman at oklahomawatch.org. And from there, I usually can give out my cell phone number. I also have a signal for people who want to remain anonymous. Okay, thanks, Ashland. You'll be able to read uh, all of Ashland's investigative work on the criminal justice beat. She'll also be writing the weekly Justice Watch newsletter, which you can sign up for at our website, oklahomawatch.org. I'm with Keaton Ross in this segment, who has been covering criminal justice at Oklahoma Watch for the past two years. Keaton's now transitioning into a new role covering the democracy beat. He's here to talk about the change in beats and what kinds of stories he plans to pursue. Keaton, what's the what's the focus of the democracy beat? Yeah, so in essence, the the democracy beat is looking at state government through a lens of access, transparency, uh, and how well it's working for for everyday folks, you know, our lawmakers, following up on what the issues people are saying are affecting them, that sort of thing. Um, and also, uh, my former colleague, Trevor Brown, who covered this beat, looked a lot at misinformation, what lawmakers are saying that isn't true, and uh, that will certainly be work I f- plan to follow up on as well. Now, this is a beat Oklahoma Watch la- launched uh, less than a year ago. Talk about what motivated that decision. Yeah, so I think it was a realization over the past couple of years by several media outlets that misinformation is becoming prevalent. There are these active threats to democracy and the democratic process, and uh, it's it's the media's role to serve as that watchdog and kind of protect democracy and look at lawmakers, maybe not through, uh, you know, the they said this, they said this kind of partisan back and forth, but how well are they functioning on behalf of the people and is is democracy uh, working is, is kind of the way it's it's being looked at in more media outlets across the nation. 2022 is turning out to be a, a pretty busy election year for midterms. How do you plan to cover the runoff in August and the general election in November? Yeah, I think there will certainly be an eye for us on on where the money's going. That's kind of been a focus of Oklahoma Watch for, for several years. But also, I think a goal for us is, is to get out and talk to real people, talk to voters. That's what we did on primary election day on June 28th, and I certainly— uh, see us doing that again on the the runoff next month and the general election day and trying to to get a sense of what real people are saying and then kind of build our agenda and what we're asking lawmakers off of what they're telling us. What what other kinds of election or or voting uh, related stories are you are you taking a look at? Yeah, so a lot of it's stuff that's that's been ongoing for several years in Oklahoma, but kind of just 
looking at it, seeing what's changed. Issues like low voter turnout, uh, that's been prevalent in, in Oklahoma for a long time. Uh, uncontested races. Uh, my former colleague Trevor did a lot of work on that, and that's certainly something we want to keep going, keeping an eye on uh, how many people are actually voting for a state representative or candidate in uh, the runoff for the general election, and, and why are so many races uncontested? Um, so th those will be things I'm, I'm looking at over the next couple of months. When the legislative session starts again in February, what kind of coverage uh, can Oklahoma Watch readers expect from you out of the Capitol? Yeah, so you know, I'll be I'll be up there. I'll be I'll certainly be in tune, kind of, to the the daily headlines and happenings. But my primary focus will be uh, following the news, but also viewing it through that lens of transparency, access. Are there any bills moving through that could uh, change the way, you know, Oklahoma voters have a voice, um, shift more power from the voters to the legislature or the voters to a certain agency. Um, that will, that will be what I'm looking at as well as, you know, being up there with an eye for how lobbyists are interacting with lawmakers and influencing them, special interest groups, um, those kinds of things will, will be my focus. Uh, lawmakers will start holding their interim studies next month. Uh, will be you going to be up at the Capitol for any of those? Yeah, that's my that's my plan. Um, the House has already released their um, their interim studies have been approved, and the Senate should be approved later this month. Um, but for example, there's an there's a interim study scheduled on the Open Meetings Act in the House. Uh, that would that's certainly something I'd plan to to attend and keep an eye on and. Um, See, see what they're saying, see what legislation might uh, come up next year. So, Now, you started the weekly Justice Watch uh, newsletter. Do you have any plans to do a democracy-focused newsletter? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's my plan is to, is to relaunch the, the Democracy Watch newsletter here in the next couple of weeks so uh, readers can, can look, look out for that. You know, uh, story tips and ideas are always valuable for journalists, uh, especially when you're new on a beat. As we, I, I've told people for years, we can't write everything we know, but if we don't know about it, there's no chance we can write about it. Uh, how can readers contact you? Yeah, so my email, uh, the best way to reach me is kross at oklahomawatch.org. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at underscore Keaton Ross, and I'll get back to you either way. Um, and I'll, I can share my cell phone, and uh, we can get in touch and and talk about talk about the tip or idea, or you know, just share. Your, you can even share your view on a certain subject, and that might inform my coverage at some point. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. That contact information, of course, is available on our website, along with all Keaton's investigative work uh, now on the Democracy Beat. You can find that at OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also sign up for Keaton's Democracy Watch newsletter. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.
Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.